Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed tea. Uh, it, is it is time now for our final session of the day. It gives me great pleasure to welcome our chairperson for this final dialogue session, Mr. K. Kasavapani. He is the immediate past president of the, of the Inter-Religious Organization of Singapore. Mr. Pani, please. Brothers and sisters, <clears throat> until 1st July, I was president of IRO. Today, I'm ex-president, or former president. <laughs> that shows how fast the world moves. But as per practice in IRO, I would like to all of you to join me in a moment of prayer. Silent prayer starts now. Thank you. This is just to demonstrate how 10 religions, 10 major religions in Singapore can be in a room, can be in a church, can be in a temple and come together and pray to their respective gods. So this is something we have been practicing from 1947. That is when the IRO was formed. And at the end of every meeting, we have what's called an invocation. The invocation also involves all the representatives of the 10 faiths. And we all pray, and we use the word God Almighty. So that shows oneness but at the same time, the freedom to practice your own faith. This is something that, uh, as Mother Teresa said, we all can't do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And this is what we do in IRO, and I hope we would, we would like to pass, spread this message. But I'm not here to, to preach on IRO or to talk about IRO. I have a far weightier function, and that is to moderate the dialogue with my friend, colleague, golf player, etc., etc., for the last 50 years. There's a lot of, lot of um, Mr. Wong's biography contains a lot of things, but I think the organizers didn't realize there was one other thing. We were both colleagues, started life in the Ministry of Labour. I was his boss, but only for one year. Now. <laughs> <laughs> then he came, and after 15 years, he was my boss. <laughs> so that's just to show what a close relationship <clears throat> we have had. And we are very, so when the organizers asked me whether I would like to, to chair the, or moderate, I jumped at the chance. Because when, how often you can you get to question a former minister, <laughs> a former DPM, especially in Singapore, you know? <laughs> okay, so never gave up that chance. So, <clears throat> Mr. Wong has had an illustrious career. Uh, 
as I told you, we both started as colleagues, but that was the comparison ends there. I was still in the lowlands. He went to Heights and MINDEF, Home Affairs, DPM and all. So he's such a well-known figure, it will be a waste of your time, my time, to introduce you. But can I invite the DPM, former DPM, to come and join me? But just because we were colleagues at one time, I'm not going to give, give him an easy time. I'm going to have hard truths, like the BBC. <laughs> but we are, by way of uh, introduction, let me say that it is not by accident that we are a multiracial, multi-religious society. Because in 1965, our first generation leaders had the foresight to welcome, to, to recognize that there are four fault lines in a society like Singapore with different religions. First, religion. Second, language. Third, race. And fourth, opportunities. So getting all these together, they formed a multiracial, multiracial, multireligious, and multilingual society, but at the core, meritocracy. So that is why we are here. And on this note, let me say, <clears throat> let me start with the first question. Well, at what particular time or moment did you feel that there was a threat to religious harmony in Singapore? During your, during your time as Home Affairs Minister and DPM. Are you going to sit down or are you going to stand up? <laughs> Well, I can't hear very well. I thought he was asking me, uh, during my time as Home Affairs Minister, when did I ever feel that there was a threat to our racial harmony? Uh, that's the question. Well, I became Home Affairs Minister in 1994. Before that, I was Minister for Community Development. And uh, in community development, we also deal with society. Basically, it's the community that comprises many races, many religions, and uh, many cultures. And in those days of 1985 to 1991, at least a time when I was the Minister for Community Development, uh, we were also in charge of culture. Uh, and it's no surprising that uh, the MCD came out of the Ministry of Social Affairs, which then at the time had the Hindu Advisory Board, the Sikh Advisory Board, and also Muis. So those were actually historical 
uh, institutions transferred over to MCD. So when it comes to dealing with race, religion, uh, in MCD, I was very much involved with it already. So in the 80s, mid-80s onwards, we see the sense of religious revivalism, a sense of uh, religious fervor uh, happening not just in Singapore, but also in the rest of the world. And that became a subject of a National Day speech by Mr. Lee Kuan Yew himself, and eventually arising from instances and cases that we dealt with that led to the maintenance of Religious Harmony Act. So from that time on, I was quite acutely aware of the seriousness of making sure that Singapore always continue to remain calm and harmonious as far as race and religion is concerned. But as a minister for Home Affairs, I think what was most alarming experience was 9-11, after we arrested a group of uh, 15 terrorists in December, and we had to interrogate them to find out more about this group, and we have to decide whether to detain them or not, and we do, we have to do so within the one month of the detention, which was the 15th of January 2012, 2002. And how do we then tell the community or tell Singaporeans that we have detained a group of 15 terrorists and all of them are Malay and Muslims? That is quite an alarming prospect. And within a very short time that we have, we have to get in touch with the uh, leaders of the community, not just the Malay Muslim community, but also our key community leaders in the various ethnic as well as in the business community and the society, society, society leaders. And of course, in between that, we have to also uh, brief the cabinet and uh, explain what we are trying to do as far as the detention order is concerned. So, uh, if we did not handle that well, then we will really have a serious problem when it comes to race and religion, because the two of them are tied, in our case, Malay and Muslim. Although, uh, the religion itself had nothing to do with it. They do not know about it. We did not know anything about it until we tell them. Uh, it took a bit of time for them to absorb it. And uh, fortunately, uh, because the security agencies were open enough to tell them almost everything, uh, there's a great acceptance of the information that was shared and which eventually convinced them that the action the government was going to take to detain this group was right. But then we also needed the leaders to respond because after a press statement is out, 
how would the community leaders respond to the arrest would help to calm the community at large. Because if not handled well, we're going to have a lot of unease, which may even cause disturbances, which can lead to disorder, which then can lead to riots. So that, that was quite something that we have to work on. And uh, fortunately, uh, through the hard work of the agencies as well as the support of the community leaders, uh, we got through that. And as I mentioned, it's not just the Muslim community, but also the Christians, the Catholics, the Buddhists, the Taoists. Practically every leadership group that we can find, we got in touch with them to explain this so that the society at large will then listen to the leaders and will know that what the government has done or the action that we took had the support of the leaders. So that, in brief, answers the question, I hope. Okay. Uh, at the inception of independence, we, or the government, brought forth the notion of a social compact. And that has stood us well because that has been one of the ingredients for the peace and harmony. Do you think, with all the tendencies, the extremist tendencies, etc., do we need to have a religious compact also? Or do we leave it to... I think, for us, the main thing is we must have that consensus that we have national interests to preserve. So long as we understand the fundamentals, what is the fundamental, which is to have a racially, religious harmony in Singapore in order for our people to make a living, and uh, in order that we can be a sovereign nation, we've got to defend ourselves, uh, in order that our people can have good jobs, we must give them education, but they rise through meritocracy. So if you understand and accept these fundamentals uh, and, and accept that while we can be of different races, different religion, uh, we can live together, uh, that is the key. So I believe many years ago we did have we did try to come together to have uh, uh, religious harmony, a religious accord, uh, uh, a accord a on the religious harmony uh, many years ago. And uh, I think now it is being practiced. As I see what uh, you do, uh, whether it's through the IRO or through the various uh, organizations that, uh, or through the ministry's help, uh, that you get together often enough to, to attend each other's event and to organize uh, functions and uh, sessions like this to share your uh, beliefs and to share your uh, understanding of one another. I think uh, that's a way forward for us because we always have challenges coming from abroad. As uh, Lily said, one big change between 30 years ago and now is that we do have apart from globalization, a lot of new people who have settled in Singapore. And they come with them, uh, we ca they come uh, 
with their own cultural background, their own experiences, uh, their own upbringing to Singapore, and we want them to be well integrated into our society, and therefore we need to find ways to reach out to them so that they can understand us better. So we need to continuously do this, and it's a work in progress, it's never-ending, it's a continuous journey. We don't think we can stop uh, maintaining, finding ways to build and sustain social harmony. No way we can do that. In fact, the, the reason why we are able to manage 9-11 uh, well and to continue to manage the issue of terrorism well is because of the work done way back in the 60s. We had two bad experiences, one in the 50s, Maria Hertog incident, 1964, two racial riots. I think that conditioned our leaders, our pioneer leaders, to uh, value the importance of racial harmony and to have laws and their structures and their policies, their programs to make sure that we continue to maintain this harmony. So the fact that we could manage it well in uh, post 9-11, I always attribute to the work that was done before that, and which is the continuous uh, relationship, uh, meeting, gathering, uh, <coughs> listening to the leaders of the various faiths and various community, various ethnic community. I remember visiting uh, Europe, uh, European countries, Germany, France, uh, UK, uh, Netherlands, uh, even the US, when I meet their leaders and we are sharing our views as to how to deal with this issue, uh, what struck me most was that when the leaders of these other countries try to get to the leaders of the uh, religious community, uh, particularly the, the Muslims, they, could find it, they found it very difficult to have access because for years they have neglected doing so. They have never tried to get access or to meet the leaders of the Muslim uh, organization, organization. So when they had an issue with terrorism, they tried to bridge the gap and try to get the understanding to cooperate with the government, they simply couldn't find a way in. Whereas in Singapore, we have been doing that. Way before 9-11, uh, ministers, particularly those who are in charge of security or community, like myself, uh, Jakuma, uh, Prime Minister, uh, Go Chok Tong, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, they have all been quite accessible to the leaders of the different communities and meet them from time to time. So when there's an issue, we say, let's meet and talk. I think our religious leaders, uh, community leaders uh, would gladly get together and discuss and talk with the government. So I, I always attribute this to be a great success factor for us because of the continuous nurturing and building of relationship between the government and the various community leaders. One issue that has been bothering me, and maybe you could give us, give us some advice. We are all comfortably seated in this room, air conditioned, speaking in English, but out there in the heartland where the language is different, the languages are different, how do we bring this message into the heartland? 
we have in IRO, we have started an initiative called Reach Out. And we have done two or three um, programs where we have gone to the various religious institutions in Yishun, in, in Yunos, and interlocutor. And the dialogue is completely different. And if you speak in Chinese, it's a different dialogue. Or if you speak in Malay, if you speak in Tamil. So this question of spreading the message via English and via people like us, or more or less, it's like preaching to the converted. So how do we overcome that problem? I think we, uh, maybe we should worry, but I think we should not worry too much. <laughs> That's because we're actually living in it. If you know, of course you should know, because uh, we have an ethnic integration policy uh, with EIP, uh, there's a guarantee that you have a multiracial group of residents living in the HDB, in the public housing. And even in private housing, uh, you also see uh, multi-ethnic makeup of uh, residents living in the private housing. So because we live together, we invariably will learn about one another's uh, cultural, religious practices. Sometimes we may not like the incense smell, we may not like the noise, and may not like uh, whatever it is, uh, but you have no choice but to live together anyway, right? It's not the case of uh, you're a big country, uh, you can then go and find a, a place where you can find people of the same kind, uh, people of the same religion, or people of the same race living together in one place. As you can see that in the European countries, uh, in, uh, in the US, for example, you can find ethnic and religious enclaves of uh, people gathering together in, uh, in the same town, the same uh, uh, area. Whereas in Singapore's case, we are all spread out, all spread out. So every day we see each other in the lift, we see each other in the hawker centre, or we see each other in the school. So I think uh, while for us at, as leaders, we want to do more, we want to know more, and we need more of those interfaith dialogues to understand more. On the ground level, uh, they are living it all the time, and uh, they meet each other all the time. But are they interested in interfaith dialogue? I don't think they are terribly worried or, or interested, uh, but because they see their neighbours, they can talk to them. But they do know that uh, there are different cultural practices. Whether you come to Seven Moon or whatever festival it is, uh, they will get to know of the other person's festivals. Well, I've got about half a dozen other questions to keep you here till 8 o'clock, but I don't think I'll be very popular. So what I will now do is to throw open the floor to questions that you have been waiting to ask. Minister Wong. Yeah, uh, my name is uh, Feng Gang Yang. I'm a professor of sociology at Purdue University in the US. I'm also the president of the East Asian Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. So I'm really uh, very uh, grateful to uh, this uh, today's uh, 
forum uh, to learn about religion uh, and religions uh, uh, in Singapore. And uh, I have a question, uh, actually I wanted to ask earlier, but uh, maybe uh, Mr. Wong is the best person for that question. Is uh, I learned that uh, in Singapore, the state uh, designate land for religious buildings. And uh, the buildings also specifically designated either for a church or for a mosque or for a temple. Now my question is, in light of religious change, because over time there are some religions grow, some religions decline, how do you make sure or ensure fairness of this state-designated land use? Thank you. Well, that is for our urban planners. Our ERA uh, has plans for that because they look at the census, they look at the religious makeup of uh, our society, uh, except for mosques, which Muiz is very much involved, and we set aside land for mosques. The rest of it, we will have uh, land set aside for religious purposes. And if it's set for religious purposes, then it's open for tender, and then it's up to whichever religious organization that want to build a church or build a temple uh, to go and bid for that. And that's been happening for the last uh, well, 30, 40, 50 years. And they've been going on as a good system. I think that system will continue uh, to be implemented. Of course, from time to time, there are appeals, uh, particularly when you come to uh, temples getting smaller or churches getting smaller, and they want to uh, find new location, and they want to get together with the others. So what the government has recently done was to set aside land for several mosques or several uh, temples or several churches to get together and operate from there so that uh, they would have a place of worship. I think uh, that's an open system which uh, whoever is a religious leader or a religious group that want to bid for land, they can always look for that uh, under our urban plan. Sure. Next question, please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, hello, Mr. Wong. Um, you know, this afternoon, I think it's very clear that uh, the state, um, the through the government, actively manages uh, inter-religious uh, relations and also the, the religious sphere in general. Um, I, I have uh, two questions. One of which was. Uh, one of which is a uh, follow-up to your response, um, you know, where there is this competitive uh, tender system for land which is devoted to religious use. Um, I think, you know, while market principles are good, um, there is a question of groups that could be outpriced. Um, and, and so if they're, if they're consistently denied or unable to secure land for their uh, place of religious worship, I think that could, be, that could also be an issue. Um, I, I know you're no longer in government, you know, but, but, but I wonder um, you know, whether the use of uh, you know, competitive bidding uh, you know, could, in a way, allow for certain religious groups you know, to have an advantage over the other. But my, my larger question is um, you know, the, the refrain of you know, the state being actively involved, right? um, you know, whether we may actually not be able, as a country, as a society, not be able to deal with 
um, inter-religious differences and conflict without the state um, getting involved, right? Because throughout the afternoon, you know, we co I constantly hear things like, what is the state going to do? Um, you know, so, so while, I, while I appreciate, uh, because I study, uh, you know, matrimonial ethnic relations in Singapore, uh, my concern is whether we have as a society, um, you know, being well-regulated, uh, you know, are able to deal with, you know, the daily stresses, you know, but, but when it comes to the crunch, uh, whether we're able to do so, uh, you know, is something which, which, uh, which is not clear. Very quickly, right, because the MRHA deals primarily with religious leaders. So the question is whether, as a society, right, uh, because the state plays such an active role, whether we are, in a way, weakened as a society in our ability to deal with uh, inter-religious differences and, and, and tensions. Uh, finally, um, you know, the MRHA deals with, um, you know, religious leaders primarily. Um, and the, the, the question always is, you know, the religious leaders through the IRO, uh, through the constant engagement by the government uh, leaders, uh, you know, with the religious leaders, uh, the question is, you know, what about the, the larger faith communities, right? So, so the religious leaders may be uh, converted, uh, but what about those, um, the, the larger community? Uh, I, I felt that the MRHA, uh, you know, in a way constrains the religious leaders, but uh, it may not be adequate enough in terms of dealing with uh, the faith communities. Thank you. Actually, the state doesn't need to come in unless there is a problem or unless you have to nip a problem in a butt. You know, as a minister, I always say, leave them alone until we know that there is going to be a problem and when there's going to be a problem, you better stop it before it happens. So that, that is my approach. I think the same approach that uh, my colleagues now have is that we do not deliberately go and uh, get involved with the religion. We leave it to the religious leaders. The state's job is to make sure that we have an environment that is uh, uh, available for the people to pursue uh, their life, uh, whether it's religious life, a cultural life, or their daily uh, working, living experiences, etc. The state would not want to get involved until there is a problem. Uh, that has been the way they've been managing. Without problem, then we don't have to deal with it. And if you are suggesting that uh, we should leave it to the religious leaders to sort themselves out, <laughs> I'm sorry that will not happen because they will lead to more problems and it's better that the government step in before it happens. Can I just add that? But if there is a problem, the government is in a position to act quickly. Is it not? Well, the pro if there is a problem, the government must be in a position to act quickly because if not, you're going to have serious issues. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So, but then of course, it doesn't mean that uh, we always come down hard. We just got to find a way to uh, lessen the problem, find a way to take the problem away without having to come down hard on those people who are involved. As you can see, I think uh, in the case, Richard mentioned many, many ways uh, in the laws, we have several laws to deal with this. Uh, we have uh, institutions to deal with this. We have programs to deal with this. And we have the community leaders to deal with it. So we will find the, a method that will be the least cost, the least friction, and the easiest to start off with. If you cannot, then we take a higher step and we graduate the steps we take. If you know that, that if you don't take quick action, it's going to lead to a serious problem, 
then the government will not hesitate to take action. Will not hesitate at all. Next question, please. Uh, my name is Pang Ming Hock. Uh, I represent myself. And I have a question for Mr. Kesa Vapani. And um, now, for the IRO, uh, I look at it as like an uh, exclusive club for those established religions. And uh, they have the voting rights, the first class citizens, as I would call them. You know. And then all the other religions they want to join, they become second class citizens or members, you know, uh, they have no voting rights. So why do you differentiate yourself and why do you put yourself, the first group that join, become the exclusive clubs to have the voting rights and become the president of IRO? Yeah. So this is my question. Because if you don't open it up, nobody will join. And that's why there's a new national group of uh, Christian uh, churches. Because they cannot join yours. <laughs> you see, and that is very divisive, because you may try to preserve whole Singapore to be, okay, we are you know, representing all religions, but yet you are not, in a way, because you don't allow them to be part of you, to be president of the IRO. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. I was exactly in that position before I joined IRO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I said, some of my good friends in various groups, they come and ask me, hey, why can't I join? Yes. But once I joined IRO, I knew why. Because managing 10 religions is already a big problem. You know? Big problem. So if you open it, you have new religions coming in. Religions who say, I don't believe in God. I believe in, uh, in this uh, Sifu. So, so and so, they pray to a picture. So you have so many other problems coming in. So for the moment, this is the best we could do. If you open up, you're going to have a, you know, a can of worms. Where do you stop? Where do you stop? So we have the 10 major religions. And we, we, we have to deal with it. Maybe in 15, 20 years, by that time, I would not be here, so it won't be a problem. <laughs> but frankly, frankly, I share your concern, yes. but I also know after one year in IRO what the problems are. Mm, I see. So and the other one is well, maybe suggestion. I noticed that the religiosity here in Singapore may be partly due to the, one of the laws, that is that uh, religious leaders are not subjected to income tax. Am I correct? Become what? No, what he, what, what he's saying is that religious leaders are not subject to income tax. I because, uh, have not heard of that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think anyone is exempted from income tax. I see. So Maybe corporate tax. The temples in you know, corporate, they may give. I know of one case we just still have to, had to deal. This particular uh, priest, that the mission doesn't pay him any salary. So he had to come in under work permit. Two years. Ministry of Labour said, sorry, two years, you have to go. 
to it and he was very good. We wanted to keep him. And then we went to Home Affairs. Home Affairs said, sorry, this is... If you had come direct to us, we would have dealt it. But you have dealt, gone to Ministry of Labour and they say they have only work permit or professional visit pass order. So you, you understand the problems. We lost a very good, very good man. He just left one week ago. I say, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> yes, please. Hi. Hi, my name is Pita, and I'm a member of the Baha'i Faith. So I was thinking about the conversations today, and that often it is very much centered on how religion is very much a threat today, and how you know there's a lot of negative things being associated with religion. But I was thinking that there could be a different way of looking at religion, because you know, religion has, you know, the original teachings have been the cause of you know, inspiring many civilizations. And religion has a lot of power in actually you know, building capacity for for peace and prosperity, to transform people, to unite people. And religion can be in harmony with rational thought. And I was thinking maybe we could think about how that can, that can be seen. And so that when we look at religion, we are not just confined to looking at it from a fixed perspective of it being a threat. I'm sorry, Mr. Pani and, my, and myself can't uh, get your question. Uh, oh, my question is that how can we look at religion in a different way? Meaning, reconceptualize the concept of religion. So sometimes we have the tendency to think of religion as like, um, you know, uh, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on and so forth. Just like we might have the tendency of thinking about science as biology, chemistry, physics. But science is actually a, a way of generating, applying, and diffusing knowledge. That's one way to look at it. So one way to look at religion could be that it is also a way of generating, applying, and diffusing knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Spiritual knowledge, knowledge about building communities, about building unity. So how can we try to reframe our thoughts about what is religion, what is the purpose of religion? I think I've lost you again, but still. <laughs> but I, I, frankly, you should have asked the, the last panel, because both of us are not religionists, <laughs> unlike uh, Professor Alami. <laughs> I think, I think she... You want to know how we reconceptualize religion? I'm afraid I'm not in a position to answer the question. <laughs> I'm sorry. But how do you how do you reconceptualize? Yes, sorry, how do you reconceptualize which uh, some things which people say eternal truths? You know, for for the Hindus they say the Bhagavad Gita. Now how are you going to reconceptualize this? Eh? So you have problems. I'm thinking of religion as this source of universal truths, like to be kind, to be generous, to be loving. All, all the religions in the world that I know actually teach those things. But as to like the holy books and you know, the way people do things are of course very different because the religions had to kind of be suited for that time that it came. So because it's evolved over so many thousands of years, so all the religions will look really different. But at the core, it inspires people. 
it inspires my neighbors to be kind to me. It inspires me to put away my differences with other people. So how can that be channeled so that that can help build unity in Singapore? So that we don't just think about how do we firefight and you know, like, um, you know, get rid of these threats, but how do we build it? You're obviously searching for, uh, for some deep answer. Because, because your question is very deep. So may I, may I suggest, may I suggest we go take it offline and we have a one-to-one -one discussion. Okay, next one, please. Uh, Mr. Wong, during our earlier panel, we talked a little bit about segregative practices which cause segregation between different groups. Uh, you mentioned just now the whole issue about if there was a problem, nip it in the bud. Uh, that was something that you used when you were uh, in office, and I think you said that that's something that, that you live by. Uh, what do you think about this area? I mean, there have been concerns about uh, different groups, different teaching coming into Singapore, which might get Singaporeans to feel that they have to stick to one particular group and be a little bit more uh, critical of the other. Uh, one way, of course, to deal with it is to use legislation. Uh, do you think that there's a place for that, or do you think that this uh, will be pushing too hard if we push for legislation when it comes to uh, segregative practices? Sorry, I don't quite get you. <laughs> Why don't you come and tell me about it? <laughs> Sorry, maybe I was... Come, come, come over here. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it'll be a clearer up here. Uh, <laughs> I think nothing to do where you stand. What the <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. Let, let me just mention the, the, <laughs> the issue about nipping, nipping issues in the bud. And uh, so that's something that you said is very important. And I think one of the issues that we talked about earlier was the issue of segregation and different groups which are trying to cause segregation and uh, which might be very exclusive and not want to. Uh, I mean, just now, I think somebody mentioned about shaking hands and things like that. Uh, do you think legislation should come in to deal with those things, or do you think there's something that communities should deal with themselves over time? Okay. <laughs> I think you definitely need legislation in order to deal with any, with, in order to have any power to deal with issues. But whether to use that legislation or not, that's a different question. Because if it is only moral suasion, you will say, please don't do this. And if you continue to do this, what can I do? I can't just walk away, right, as a government. <laughs> you need the legislation in order to back you up, to say, if you don't do the following thing, then, of course, the consequences will follow. It's like a restraining order under the MRHA. If you, if you are put under... Uh, restraining order for saying things that you're not supposed to say uh, that interferes with the, the state or with the religion, then I'll give you a restraining order. <coughs> but if you don't obey the restraining order, then I can take it higher up eventually, get you charged. But if I don't even have that legislation, then <laughs> I come and talk to you and say, please don't do this, and if you don't follow my advice, I'll be... A lame duck. Okay, this would be the last question. Jilin, you want to? Easier to come here. 
if you don't mind, I'll just slip two in. The first one is, apart from legislation, from your experience, Mr. Uh, Wong, as you interacted with the community leaders, what can they do themselves to manage things better? Is it more forums? Is it more forums that are public? Is it, uh, you mentioned the Declaration for Religious Harmony, is it fleshing that out with more examples? Is that putting it on the internet. So what in terms of actually ground-up initiatives you feel will be the most helpful to ensure that Singaporeans can live at peace with each other, know that they practice different things, but they don't sort of keep to their own silos and enclaves and dare not, you know, interact with each other because of things, right? Beliefs. The second one is looking at the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act. The current... Uh, cases were about preachers, whether preachers from afar who are known to have certain so-called deviant teachings or strange teachings or teachings that are not really something that will reinforce our multi-religious, multi, uh, multi-ethnic practices uh, are kept out. There's nothing there that says you cannot if we know that you have deviant teachings, we, we, we are then empowered to sort of tell you no work permit, you know. So in terms of legislation also, is there any, do you have any feeling that there's more work to be needed there? Do we need more of those, um, more of those powers to act in different ways than just the restraining order on preachers that exist here? Thank you very much. Sorry, I slipped two in. Thank you, Chairman. I think obviously, uh, when the law was passed in 1990, 1991, that was before the age of uh, your Facebook, WhatsApp, and all the social media. Uh, and in those days, you could get face-to-face, -face and you can talk to the person, they can have, you can publicize it in the papers, and reach a small group of people, or reach a group of people within Singapore. But in today's context, with social media and all the technology, uh, news spread much faster and basically quite difficult to control. Similarly, the events and methods that happen outside Singapore that will influence us will also be more difficult to control. So for ourselves, I think we need to, at a leadership level, uh, all our religious and the community leaders, uh, they ought to be aware of that and they need to find ways of reaching out to their own community. Uh, whether it's at a church or a temple or whatever occasion that it may have or in organizing uh, sessions like this or in publications and uh, on. And they can also, they should also use the digital media to reach out to their followers because uh, if their followers are not uh, uh, reading newspapers uh, but only uh, using their smartphones and uh, social media, then they should also find ways to get into that platform so that they can get the messages across to the social, through the social media to their followers. Now, for, for foreigners who come here, the question whether we should control them or not, I think we should because if they come here and bring their foreign ideas here without understanding the social context in Singapore, and cause us difficulties, I think we are the ones who have to wrap up the problem. So I think it's better that we find ways of, uh, of uh, managing that, uh, work together with the uh, 
community, with the religious leaders themselves, who bring such uh, foreign preachers to Singapore. Of course, if the government knows about them, we can also work closely together with the religious leaders and the organizations to make sure that uh, this doesn't become an issue for us. Okay, there's, apparently there's no buzz for me, so I will buzz myself and say that uh, we'll bring this session to a close. And uh, let me take this opportunity to thank Mr. Wong when he was in government for all the hard work that was put in to make this place a peaceful and harmonious society. Thank you. On that note.